0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Thanks for being here with us this morning. I'm really uh, looking forward to getting a chance to meet with you guys in person in a couple weeks here. I had the brief stint, as Aaron mentioned earlier, before uh, things got uh, crazy here again with Omicron. So uh, as it's a little bit more in control now, we're really looking forward to getting a chance to uh, get back together. And uh, we won't talk about Omicron 2.0 or whatever is going on here with new stuff happening. We're just going, we're going with it. We're really looking forward to seeing you guys. And thanks for bearing with us through all of this difficulty of trying to hold a community like ours together. Um, I I really um, am so appreciative that we still have this space. Here and that we've been able to continue to be Central Avenue Church. So, when we get back, it'll be so nice to actually get to spend time uh, with you guys and not see everybody on a screen. Um, And so, for the next two weeks, we are uh, here also in Black History Month, and we are going to be continuing to uh, talk about. Uh, what that means and to uh, hear and lift up black voices. Um, you know, of course, this is something that's important for us in this community as we focus so much on uh, being a community of advocates for justice. And, um, and that looks so many different ways uh, and involves so many different things. But particularly this month, we take a look back at the really complex and difficult history of black people here in the United States, especially. Um, And not just as something that was something that happened in the past, but something that's still um, ongoing. Um, So I wanted to share with you this morning, um, we're gonna look at a, um, a piece of liturgy that is a prayer of lament that was actually put together by the Church of England. Um, I was drawn to it after uh, reading um, what they call their pastoral principles for living well together. I'll just drop them in the chat because I thought they were uh, so worthwhile. Um, But this is kind of how they center their uh, community in the Church of England around social justice issues. And they they address these specific seven points, that if we're going to engage issues of social justice well, we have to acknowledge prejudice, speak into silence, address ignorance, name fear, admit vulnerability, pay attention to power, and commit to action. Um, we are good at some of these things at times and not so great at some of them uh, at other times. And this is also not an exhaustive list. You know, as I look through this, one of the things I see very much missing in this setup is particularly focusing and centering on minority voices of people who are oppressed. So this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive list. This is just a way for um, us to think about what it means to intentionally center ourselves in community. So the Church of England has done this in particular, and they put together this um, prayer of lament, particularly around um, a Black History Month here. And uh, so as we open in prayer, um, I'll then lead us into this prayer of lament, and, uh, and I'll share my screen here. Um, so that we can do that together. As always, when we share liturgy, uh, I'd invite you to unmute if you're comfortable doing so, and um, I will pray the parts that are not in bold and we will respond <laughs> together as a community with the parts that are in bold. Perfect. Right. Um, so as we start our service this morning, would you pray with me? God of justice, God who sees beyond the barriers that we put up, beyond the walls and obstacles and oppression that we don't even know are there because we've inherited them from churches, from culture, from political parties, from broken justice systems things that we haven't been a part of establishing, but that we continue to be a part of as they maintain. Help us to be people of justice. Help us to be people who seek to not just understand our history, but rewrite a new history. And so this morning we pray together, this prayer of lament as we join together with Christian voices um, throughout the world, recognizing these difficulties in our church, your church. God of all, we confess that we have inherited a faith that was used to justify the theft of native lands and the enslavement of your people from this sin We ask for deliverance. Forgive Forgive us for where we we have failed. Touch hearts that have been shriveled by generations of suppressed empathy, and eyes that have lost the ability to see brothers and sisters who suffer from systemic injustice.
1: Forgive Forgive us 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 for where we we have failed. Understand.
0: Grant us courage to renounce the false teachings that we can somehow know you without being committed to justice for all people. Forgive Forgive us us us. where we we fail to understand, Lord. 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 In your mercy, help us mourn the divisions among the body of your Son and work for healing in the places where we gather to worship you. Forgive Forgive us us. us. where we 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 fail to understand, Lord. 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 As we name and unlearn the habits of racism, discrimination, and prejudice, give us grace to draw deeply from the witness of the movements that have always resisted injustice in the power of your spirit.
1: Forgive,
2: Forgive us. us, us pray
0: pray pray for we pray with thanksgiving for the prophetic leaders who guide, challenge, and inspire us today. Give us grace to follow them to freedom. Forgive, Forgive us where for we and understand. understand, Lord. Lord. In, your mercy, In your mercy, set us free. This morning, I wanted to share with you a, a short piece uh, written by Stephen Carlisle Void. Um, it's called Who Am I? And uh, we talk a lot uh, during. Black History Month, and as we focus on social justice issues, um, we talk a lot about um, the difficult aspects of of the history of slavery and oppression, Um, but I wanted here to focus on something that is more about what it means to be a part of the positive experience of black culture. So know that of course, um, uh, Stefan Carlisle Voigt is a a black man and poet himself. And he wrote this piece. So this is obviously from his perspective as a black man. Um, But uh, I I was really, I I found it beautiful and thought it would be uh, a great thing to share with you here this morning. When someone asks me, who am I? I tell them, I am the great mind that was taken from the motherland. I am the one who survived the middle passage. I am the one that built a nation with my blood, sweat, and tears. I am the visionary that built and invented things that changed modern America. I am Claflin, South Carolina State, Benedict, Allen, Howard, Clark, Spellman, Morehouse, Payne, and other historically Black colleges and universities that taught young people that they are great. I am the Divine Nine. I am the Harlem Renaissance. I am jazz, soul, blues gospel and hip-hop. I am the sharecropper, the maid, and the nanny. I am the farmer, the seamstress, the factory worker, and the teacher. I am the midwife, the doctor, and the nurse. I am the strange fruit that hung from southern trees. I am the marcher, the freedom rider, and the Christian that the children that died in Birmingham. I am the civil rights movement. I am the future that Martin dreamed about. I am the hope and change that Obama spoke of. I am strong. I am great. I am blessed. I am a child of God.
3: I am Black America. Amen. Thanks, Bob. Now will be the time in our service where we take our communion.
1: And uh, if you haven't had a chance to grab something, uh, we just use elements that we have around our own spaces, something to stand in for the bread, something to stand in for the juice. Um, We often uh, get pretty creative around here, so feel free to be creative. Um, But this is a time that's open um, to all all that um, feel comfortable uh, participating. And as a reminder, what we do in communion is uh, is a way of reminding us and actually embodying, doing with our bodies, right? Movement, uh, action um, of our connectedness and our call to be uh, people of justice, people of peace, people of love um, in the world. So when we do this each week, it is uh, a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, but But what we want to focus on today is Um, how it is a rededication and a recommitment to living as the body of of Christ in the world um, and being active as the body of Christ in the world. Um, And so today, uh, Bob, nice. That's a good one. It's a good pairing. I have blue corn tortilla chips and coffee. So there you go. Also, yeah, feel free. We haven't done that in a while, but feel free to uh, share what what you're using in the uh, chat there uh today um i'll read a short poem well it's a, it's a prayer but it's by a poet author uh named alan patton from uh he's a south african author Um, called For Courage to Do Justice. Um, And just as Bob has been talking about, um, and as we're framing in terms of communion, uh, we can use this as a call and a reminder uh, for us to have the courage to do justice because oftentimes, so often, I know it's true with me, uh, we can know what the right thing to do is. We can know what justice looks like and yet still uh, might not be able to bring it to fruition or have the courage um, to take the steps or confront uh, the injustice or uh, to put in the work um, to actually see it realized. So uh, f- with that in mind, uh, we pray this together before we take communion. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> oh, Lord, open my eyes that I may see the needs of others. <clears throat> open my ears that I may hear their cries. Open my heart so that they need not be without succor. Let me not be afraid to defend the weak because of the anger of the strong, nor afraid to defend the poor because of the anger of the rich. Show me where love and hope and faith are needed and use me to bring them to those places. And so open my eyes and my ears that I may be this coming day able to do some work of peace for thee. Amen. And with that, in remembrance of our call to justice and peace and the commitment we have um, to doing the work of Christ in the world, I invite you to take your elements um,
3: and and take them on your own time. May it be so. Amen.
4: Thanks, Max. Just one quick announcement today. Just a reminder that we will return to in-person meetings on March 6th. There will still be a Zoom option available um, for those of us who are out of state or just not ready to come in person, but we will share more details in the future. And that's it.
5: All right. Thanks, Angie. So uh, prayer requests, words of thanksgiving, uh, general reports. Uh, now is the time that you can share what's going on in your life. Uh, if, and uh, if there's a, something you want prayed about, we will we will pray as a family uh, for you, for it. Uh, anybody this morning?
4: Yeah, I'd love some prayer for my mom. So I know it's been a few weeks since we've um, been able to be here. But um, a few weeks ago, my mom was hospitalized. Um for three or four days, it took them a while to figure out what's going on, but they diagnosed her with viral meningitis. Um, oh she is pretty miserable still. She's um, on the mend, but the her wins are things like I showered today. Um, so she's uh, it's gonna be a while till she comes back. Her health was not poor before, but my mom's not young either and her health wasn't great either. So she's, um, doctor says she's on, the right pace to like the doctor says she's kind of like where she ex- would expect her to be for her age and her general health, so she's not doing worse than we would expect. But meningitis can take up to a year to fully heal from. Um, and so I'm we're thankful that it wasn't something else, right? When she went in, her heart was racing, her blood pressure spiked, so we were worried about like a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. So we're thankful it's not that, we're thankful it's not something that's more chronic we're thankful it's not bacterial meningitis because that is yeah that's worse. the more serious one yeah um but at the same time it's just you know it's hard it's hard to see her you know not do so well and she was in the hospital for like 3 or 4 days completely alone um which is just miserable so yeah would love um yeah would just love some prayer for her healing and and for just encouragement too I, she's not someone who likes She's the kind of person you'd have to like chop her arm off to go to the doctor. So she does not like being like the sick person and having people take care of her. And so just so for her healing, but also for encouragement, you know, to keep her spirits up and um, be able to see the winds as winds, you know, showering is still a win.
5: Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up uh, Ashley's mom in the hour of her need. We pray for healing. Um, as Ashley uh, calls for, and, and we also pray for um, just just her sense of well-being, uh, encouragement that she would uh, just feel supported and loved and, and cared for by those around her. But I pray also for, we pray also for uh, Ashley and the, and the whole family as they um, just grapple with this and uh, attempt to, you know, journey with her through this and be a loving support to her. We pray for their um, peace of mind and and wisdom and and just knowledge about how to best care for her. We pray for the doctors involved, uh, that they might uh, just know the best course of action. And um, we just lift up this entire family in Jesus name. Amen. Um, Somebody else. Hey, Hey, yeah, go ahead. Hey, Anthony, you're you're in the car.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm uh, going back to Cali. Okay. Traveling Grace and uh, yeah, that's it for now. Traveling.
5: Are you uh, you westbound in Texas? Is that what's going on?
3: Yes, I just left Sweetwater. If that means anything to anybody, but I got a ways to go.
5: Yeah, sounds like I don't know where that is, but it's in West Texas, I assume. okay okay all right all right let's pray uh we give thanks for our our dear brother anthony and we just pray for travel mercies for him and uh an alert mind uh and uh yeah jesus name amen yeah man Uh, thanks for joining us uh isn't technology amazing (laughs) it's so cool that it is yeah yeah all right man uh anybody else Uh, we want to recognize um, Cassandra posted in in the chat. Uh, big thanks uh, to uh, for Andre's great knee surgery. It was a, it was a success, and we are so grateful. He is back walking already. Excellent. Yeah, we give thanks for that. Thanks for joining us.
3: All right, um, with that, Max, I'm going to hand it back over to you. So uh, for this morning, I'm going to share uh, a,
1: a video of a, of a song. It's a very old song uh, written in 1939 it is often looked at as uh, one of the early what could be called protest songs um, and uh, uh, unintentionally was not planned, but was alluded to in the, in the poem prayer that Bob, read Um, but especially as we've been talking about as we focus our thoughts during Black History Month um, and the ways in which although much progress has been made there's still so much to go um, I thought it would be a good um, song to remind us uh, of the work to be done and the history and legacy that we all carry um, especially in this uh, country um, and remind us um, that it wasn't that long ago so this is Billie Holiday Uh, Again, it was in 1939, she first uh, performed this song, although I think this one's from, yeah, this one's from 1959. And during that time, over the 20 years, it cost her a lot, as you can probably imagine, being a black woman uh, in the 30s, 40s and 50s, uh, singing protest songs uh, was something that came at a great cost, so um, may we remember uh, her example and be reminded of of the courage, um, and and do likewise. So, with that, I will play "Strange Fruit" by Billie Holiday. Uh...
6: Southern trees that strange fruit. Pastoral scene of the gallant south The bulging eyes and the twisted mouth Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh then the sudden smell Of burning flesh Here is a fruit For the crows to pluck For the rain together For the for the sun to rock for the tree to drop here is a strange and bitter
1: In 1999, Time uh, called it the song of the century uh, of the 1900s um, because of its uh, ability to tie in um, haunting, uh, disturbing imagery into uh, a beautiful melody, uh, haunting as well. Um, and the way it can remind us again of how um, there's so much work to be done. Um, so. I hope we can take that as a call from here.
5: Excellent. Thank you, Max. So today is part five in our church history series, and we're looking at the Protestant Reformation uh, today, which is perhaps my favorite period of church history to talk about, because so many fascinating things happened that created not just uh, us Protestants and, and the modern church, but actually the modern world, too. Um, and I want to be clear today at the outset um, that, that I am not. Probably this isn't going to be a big surprise. I am not anti-Catholic. <laughs> Anytime we talk about the Reformation, I feel like we, we need to I need to say that uh, I know and love Catholics, and I don't think Protestantism is somehow you know superior to Catholicism. And let's let's keep in mind that the Protestant Church has uh, you know got its own problems too. Uh, nor do I wish to exalt or deify. Any reformers today, especially Luther, who I think still was, you know, which uh, was, was brilliant in his own right, but I don't want to exalt or deify anybody today like that. They certainly have their own shortcomings. Uh, and yet this moment in church history was quite profound and, and, and really worth studying, and we've done so before.
3: It's important to understand that the
5: Reformation was an event that occurred you know, solely in the Western Church. Uh, my internet connection is unstable. Can you guys? Uh, can you guys hear me?
0: You're oh, most okay. Good. You've got just one big clip there. We'll let you. Know. Oh, okay. All
5: right. Cool. All
0: right. Good technology.
5: Uh, okay. So uh, it's important to understand that the Reformation was an event that occurred solely in the Western Church. The Eastern Church, meaning the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't go through the reformation because they were not part of the western church at that time they broke with the western church officially in the year 1054 so almost 500 years before uh the reformation and and they broke over various political and theological issues that we won't go into here so in a way you know the eastern church actually went through a reformation a reformation of their own or a similar break uh with the church in rome and then you know they fragmented into a variety of Eastern denominations that we see today, like the Greek Orthodox Church, the, the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the, the Coptics. Uh, and, and for those of you who live in Glendale, you're probably familiar with uh, the Armenian Orthodox Church, right? Uh, but, but when we speak of the Reformation, we are speaking of an event that took place uh, really within Western Europe, within Western Christianity, uh, and, and of which we Western Christians... Uh, both Protestant and Catholic alike, are the heirs of. It's also important to understand that the Reformation, in, in many ways, predates Luther and the other reformers that were active at the same time as him uh, in the 16th century. I'm talking about reformers like Ulrich Zwingli in, in Switzerland and John Calvin in France, but but predating all of them by about 100 years were guys like John Wycliffe and, and Jan Hus, who criticized the church for the Really, the same things, uh, for the same corruptions that Luther and others did a century later, like you know the sales, the sales of indulgences, which were quite literally, you know, the church was selling tickets to heaven, if you can believe that. Uh, like Luther, uh, Wycliffe, and Huss, critique the church's, you know, insatiable lust for, you know, money and power, and the ways in which it manipulated scripture in order to uh, achieve these these nefarious goals. But again. Wycliffe and Huss predate the Reformation by about 100 years, and yet their legacy was was known by Luther and the other reformers, and in many ways, Luther and and, um, the others were standing on their their shoulders and simply picked up where they left off. So when we think of the Reformation, we should remember that it was not nearly as novel or as original to the 16th century uh, and to the work of men like Luther. Uh, Zwingli and Calvin, as it seems. They they were very much part of an older and and much broader critique or Reformation uh, and movement of dissent within the church, within the late medieval church. In order to really understand the Reformation, we also must understand that it probably would not have been possible without certain technological advancements, like the movable type printing press, which had been invented by Johann Gutenberg in 1450 about 60 years before Luther uh, and and the other reformers kicked off things. This this new technology allowed for the reformers to quickly and easily disseminate their ideas and to do so within the vernacular of the day. We we must consider how technology played a big role in the Reformation and consider how it's certainly playing a a role in the spiritual shifts taking place today in our culture. And we, we can talk more about that at the end if you'd like. I've got some thoughts on that. The Reformation also probably wouldn't have been possible without the Renaissance, which began just before the Reformation. Uh, and the Reformation really should be understood as, as part of the Renaissance. And these enormous seismic you know, cultural and, and social changes it, it fostered. And what really defined the Renaissance, and in turn the Reformation, was a school of thought uh, called humanism. Now today, Humanism is, is a euphemism for atheism it's <laughs> a lot of isms there uh, but in the Middle Ages humanism was about was not about atheism. Rather humanism represented among other things this, this high view of humanity uh, and the human intellect and this belief that you know man is the measure of all things. this is why Renaissance art uh, often depicts the human body with exquisite detail. It was about you know depicting humanity in all of its glory. In, in this way, the Renaissance and humanism really focused on the, the uniqueness, the, the value and the dignity of the individual, and thereby in some ways, you know, the, the Renaissance decentered centered and devalued, you could say, the power of institutions like the church. It, it's not hard to see how humanism set the stage for the Reformation, right? The, the Reformation valued the individual's you know so-called rights before god this idea of you know the priesthood of all believers this idea that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and not something the church does for us or some priest you know does for us this idea that individuals have a you know god-given right to read and interpret the scriptures for themselves and you know to read the text within their own language instead of you know relying on the church to do that for them you know, and in Latin, right, these were Renaissance and humanist ideas, and in many ways, not only gave us uh, the, the Reformation, but but gave us the modern world, you know, complete with the American and French revolutions, the Enlightenment, and, and the scientific revolution, and, and modernity, right, I, I mean, it's really that, that's, that's really that enormous in scope, right, it all started with the Renaissance and the Reformation, once, once the foundation of the medieval church was destabilized by Luther and others, a, a power vacuum formed in Europe that was filled by new understandings of reality and cosmos. You know, I'm talking about um, you know scientific understandings fostered by guys like you know Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo and, and later on Newton, right, and, and others. The, this too is part of the legacy of the Reformation. You know, the birth of the scientific revolution. I I don't think a lot of uh, People know that, and part of what led to that was, was uh, particularly Luther's uh, critique of the church and what Luther called his, his Theologia Crucis, which I've talked about before. Theologia Crucis is Latin for theology of the cross, and L- Luther wielded this, this, this theology, his reading of scripture, you could say. He wielded this like a hammer <laughs> against, against the late medieval church. And what, uh, what Luther described as as the church's theology of glory and his theology of the cross was, in fact, a reaction against the, the church's so-called theology of glory, which was, you know, this, this worldview and hermeneutic or method of interpreting scripture that the medieval church operated under and, and what they drew all their power from. The, the church's theology of glory was, was based on this idea that the church uh, and specifically the pope, was, you know, God's representative on earth. And therefore, just as all things came under the sovereignty and lordship of Christ, all things came under the sovereignty and lordship of the papacy and the church, you know, until Christ returned. This gave the church, of course, you know, total power over human affairs. And and this theology of glory was, was really founded on this belief that, you know, the church and the church alone had direct access to the mind of God and and uh, thereby could control or, or wield the power of God on earth. Luther comes along and says, no, you've got it all wrong. The, the, the cross, you know, the, 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 sen- the central s- uh, symbol of Christianity, the cross shows us that God is, is other than anything human cognition could come up with. All claims to ultimate knowledge and power are destabilized by the cross. The, the cross is not a symbol of power, but powerlessness, right? The cross is not a symbol of wealth, but poverty. It's not a symbol of of victory, but defeat. The cross is not a symbol of logic, but absurdity, right? It's, it's a crucified God. <laughs> uh, the cross is not a symbol of direct knowledge of God, but rather a symbol of God's utter incomprehensibility. You, you cannot build an empire on the cross, Luther basically was saying. It's, it's impossible, it doesn't work. And by making such arguments, uh, again, this is Luther's theology of the cross, by making these arguments, Luther w- was saying that the church's, the, the church's worldview and hermeneutic, its so-called theology of glory, was just really a, a thinly veiled power grab. Uh, Luther was saying that, that the church was a charlatan drunk on power and greed and engaging in fraud. And, and this is how he and other reformers confronted and, and deconstructed the power of the medieval church. One one can understand, you know, why that got him and others uh, in a lot of trouble. Uh, A a scholar, a Reformation scholar and friend of mine named Josh de Kaiser puts it this way. He says, Luther's deconstruction, and we should call it deconstruction. Luther's deconstruction, given the the religious imagination of his time, was no less thorough than what we mean by deconstruction today. Indeed, when Luther's new ideas got traction, not only did they form a huge threat for the religious establishment, rather the entire conglomerate of church and and state was ruptured. The power of the German emperor was diminished and the Roman Catholic Church no longer ruled over Europe, end quote. This is really the size and and the scope of what the Reformation accomplished. It's hard to do it justice in in a short talk like this one, but it's important for us to have a basic understanding of it as we're looking at church history in, in this series, because in a way, you know, we're really standing on their on their shoulders, the, the shoulders of these reformers. Uh, they they were not just debating some tedious theological points that only mattered to a handful of priests and bishops. You know, at the end of the day, they were calling into question the very foundations of reality and and the as the medieval world understood it. Uh, this is why many credit the Reformation and, and the Renaissance as being the birth of the modern world, and I think that's a, a fair assessment. So that's my, uh, my short presentation today on the Reformation, um, and as always, I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts about that, any questions you might have. I've got some uh, discussion questions here, but uh, does anybody have anything they want to ask or, or, or say here at the outset? I'm, I'm curious about, you know, how you might think, uh, where do we see the, the legacy of the Reformation today in the church? Where and, and in what ways um, do you see it being embodied? Anybody
3: want to talk about that? I was, I don't know if um you're
5: familiar. How many of you are familiar with what happened over the last few weeks with this baptism controversy in the Catholic Church? Any of you anybody uh, not all of you. Okay, well, um basically what happened is the uh, the archdiocese in Arizona um has had did they did they let go of that bishop or that priest, or did I think I think the priest resigned. Uh, he yeah, resigned, yeah. yeah. And it's because he was doing baptisms wrong wrong i'm putting it in quotation marks for like 30 years whereby when he baptized babies he used uh we instead of i he said we baptize you and the blah 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 instead of i baptize you and so uh this has been all over uh well it's, it's been in a lot of the news sources because you know it's kind of a strange controversy uh so he resigned and he was a priest doing this for like 30 years so if you understand catholicism you understand that if, you know, if you're not baptized properly as a baby, therefore, you know, your future marriage might be invalid. You know, you your your confirmation, you know, first communion uh, was somehow invalidated. And so you have thousands and thousands of people, perhaps, that have been affected by this, uh, which, of course, is ridiculous. But it's interesting. It's an interesting it's it spurred an interesting conversation uh, that kind of relates to uh, what we're talking about today you know um, going back to the reformation and some of its values you know um, think, think of the god they're implicitly you know telling us to believe in right uh, this this pedantic being on high who you know apparently loves grammar more than people right the, the this is the creator of the universe right we're, we're told this is a god of love right if if your priest used the wrong words when immersing you in water you may be you may be doomed You know, I I think this reveals a church that's, you know, in some ways, just totally disconnected from people's lived reality and doesn't really serve anyone's best interest but their own. And I'm, I'm reminded of something Jesus said when the religious authorities confronted him about violating, you know, some nuanced rule about the Sabbath. He said, you know, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. And I think we can just swap out the word Sabbath with for baptism there, right? Baptism. Was made for humankind and not humankind for baptism. The point is, when our religious traditions no longer are, are life giving or enhance our or others' well being, right? they need to change. We, we don't serve religion, religion serves us. And when it stops serving us and, and starts harming us or others, we can change it or, or leave it behind. And we should. You know, I, I realize that's kind of a radical thing to say, but I think that is one of the, the lasting lessons of the Reformation that. We're, that that we're still unpacking today. In a way, I, I don't think the Reformation you know, ever ended. In fact, one of the mottos of the Reformation, coined by a, a Dutch Protestant minister in, in the 17th century, is semper reformanda, which is Latin for always be reforming. Never never stop reforming, which is another way of saying, you know, never stop growing, never stop exploring, never, never, never stop questioning, never stop becoming. Uh, that's that's part of the lasting legacy of the reformation that I I see today. Uh and perhaps some, one of the better parts, Semper Ray Fermanda. Um anybody have any comments about that?
3: Um, I have a thought about something that you said just
2: a minute ago. Um yeah. about Martin Luther in a sense deconstructing his deconstructing his faith at the time. And, um, you know, I think inherently, we all like power in some way, whether it's, whether it's in terms of like, I want to be in control of my life, or I want to be in control of others, like we want to feel in control in some way. And so churches inherently, because of the, you know, there's some kind of authority structure in most um, denominations and, and are going to, are going to drift in that direction. And, and, you know, the, the amount of deconstruction that I feel like is happening right now, and that it's been given kind of this name now, you know, people are deconstructing. It's like a common term, um, strikes me as a, a, um, broader version in some ways of what Martin Luther was doing when he you know nailed the document to the door it's it's not as direct and not as you know like i'm coming it's more individuals saying i'm not participating anymore yeah. i'm going to go do something else so i just thought that was interesting that you you kind of connected those two the deconstructing aspect
5: yeah and i i i personally feel like more connected to you know frankly christians of the past by by understanding those connections like like we're not doing anything that's actually terribly novel or new you know in the in the deconstruction movement i'm putting that in quotes because it is kind of a newer term you know we're actually part of a longer legacy um dating from the renaissance and the reformation and kind of again the birth of the modern age which you know was this you know destabilization of you know the old power and authority structures of europe which was essentially the church you know the the, uh, the, the triumph, you know, we're talking about the triumph of reason over over uh, superstition or, or the triumph of reason over, you know, uh, tradition. Um, we're kind of, you know, deconstruction movement is it, today is very much an embodiment of those Renaissance and Reformation ideals, I think. Um, yeah. Which I think were Christian ideals. <laughs> you think about Je- uh, Jesus is saying the Sabbath was made for humankind and humankind for the Sabbath. I mean, that's deconstruction. How is that not deconstruction? Yeah, right. you could. The Sabbath was a major religious tenet of Judaism. Still is. Right, um, Pete Pete ends. I don't know if any of you follow
2: him at all, but the Bible for normal people adore him. He um, he refers to to Jesus's ministry as as deconstructionist in a way, in in those kinds of terms, where he's looking at his faith and discard his Judaic faith. And discarding the things that were added on or that don't hold value or who, you know, like, you know, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, you know, reframing things. I mean, it's, it's, and he goes even further back in, in Pete ends in his talks about, like, this is just this doubting and these questions, this is what the entire Bible is filled with. Like this is not outside of the realm of how our faith should be working, yet we've fallen into this pattern of churches determining our denominations or pastors or whoever, determining how and what you're, how you're supposed to interpret scripture, et cetera. And that doubting is considered a lack of faith, whereas historically in scripture, doubting in many ways is a sign of your faith because you're engaging it and wrestling with it and questioning it so
5: yeah yeah i appreciate that point of view very much thank you for sharing that um yeah i, I wish we didn't have to like you know structure it so much of your own know, like this negative term like deconstruction so it's kind of a negative term like it's it's actually a way of living into a positive you know faith uh it's actually a way of deepening faith uh in my opinion Um, faith as, as a kind of, you know, wrestling with these unanswerable questions. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's good stuff. Thanks, Anne. Um, I'm seeing uh, in the chat, uh, Stephen saying some cool things here. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Randy, go ahead. You got something?
7: Oh, yeah. Um, I was just thinking that some, in the political world, there's sort of an anti-Reformation. People, like on the Supreme Court, want America to be a theocracy. Um, like, for example, Rick Santorum a couple of years ago wanted to ban contraceptives to people who aren't married because it gives them, you know, the, the ability to do things in the sexual nature. So it seems like mm. pe- more and more people in power are trying to put Christian values into law. Yeah. with re- You know, it starts with abortion and where is it going to go with sexual mores, you know, it's just kind of like um it seems to be it could be the tip of the iceberg
5: yeah like, yeah you're it sounds like you're describing sort of this this desire among some to uh not reform and and not not progress and to return to an, a previous age uh and which isn't just a way of saying returning to previous power structures that were unquestioned <laughs> namely mm-hmm. namely the church and uh, you know christianity and yeah yeah, you're right. No, it's absolutely mm-hmm. that. Absolutely.
8: <clears throat> Hello. Yeah. Hey. Hey, Andre. Uh, uh, I really like the um, the topic we've uh, you've been covering today, uh, uh, and uh, I um, the angle of uh, people uh, that um, the, the angle that Randy brought up about uh, people using. Uh, uh, Religion, at least that's how I see it, to um, to further their own agendas or to stay in control and in power. Uh, I actually, um, I, I'm a Christian Orthodox, and I was born in that religion. And I feel like, like from our history and our history, and at least how I see it, uh, the um, there was like a direct uh, direction of not. Uh, wanting to accumulate power at least that was one of the main reasons of the great schism uh, uh, end of 1054 to not want to accumulate power into the church and which eventually i feel like was also one of the root reasons for the reformation itself like luther was actually fighting the accumulation of power inside the church yes. which means to keep it and accumulating wealth and all of that which of, I, at an instinctual level, we can, I feel like we can understand it's wrong. But on the other end, the interesting part is that on the Christian Orthodox side, despite power not being accumulated into the um, church as much, and not the church not being uh, anywhere near as wealthy as the Catholic one, there okay. still was a, a big degree of manipulation and use of the of religion to further not the the church's itself agenda, like it was with the Vatican, but the king's ones of that were actually in charge, because it, uh, they, uh, the religion was constantly used for political agendas throughout different countries, like Russia, like Romania, Greece, all of, like this, the church was used for further agendas, it just was not the agenda of the church itself, and it was the agenda of the main, main rulers of the time. and it's. Obviously, it's a bit sad, but it almost feels like fate that some people will always throughout history try to take advantage of the religion dimension that we all share to further on the agenda, regardless of where that drive comes from, whether it's from the church or from some outside factor. Like It seems like it's also happening right now in the U.S. with the members of the Supreme Court and the GOP and that aspect. It almost feels like fate that keeps repeating itself.
5: Yes, you're right. And thank you for that Eastern Orthodox perspective. That's really um, powerful and, and uh, meaningful. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, what we're describing here, you know, it's easy to pick on, uh, you know, Catholicism or the Western Church as like, but, but all segments of Christianity. And, and, you know, again, this isn't just a Christian problem, but religion in general lends itself to power too, too easily, uh, and to imperial power, uh, historically speaking. Why is that? I mean, that's, I think, I think there's some really important questions about why do we as human beings conflate God with imperial power so often and, and use, you know, something that's supposed to be so uh, enriching, you know, spirituality and faith. And why, why does that become so easily co-opted by, you know, uh, corrupt powers and, and, and you know, those, those kinds, and specifically state power? <laughs> why is that? Um, I think those are very important questions. Um, that re- can reveal a lot about us as human beings. Um, and that's part of what deconstruction is, right is exploring those questions and arriving at some answers that probably are a little unsettling. Anybody have any thoughts on that?
4: I was actually just thinking the opposite of isn't it amazing that we've done this has been part of history and probably every civilization from the dawn of time, and yet somehow, we don't live in like a completely totalitarian regime. Either So, I think it's yeah. interesting because we do kind of, um, I mean, to be frank, I think some of the things that are going on today are pretty terrifying, um, but at the same time, like, people continue to question, yeah. people continue to challenge, people continue to push forward, uh, and I think there's something amazing about that too, right? what is it about the nature of humanity that we do lean into these power structures, even when it's not in our own best interest? But then also, what is it about humanity that we continue to fight even when, uh, you know, things are seem to keep stacking against us, right? This sort of power dynamic that plays over time. There's some interesting things, I think, to to kind of ponder on both sides of that.
5: Yeah. Yeah, you raised
3: some really interesting points. Somebody want to respond to that?
5: I, I was think. go ahead, Dan or Angie.
9: Oh, yeah, I was going to please stop me if this starts to unravel into okay stop Uh, (laughs) all right thank you Uh, no no, i think i mean i obviously don't know the answer to that question and but it's something i think you know a question we've all thought at some point but um i just feel like it, it must have something to do with um certainty and comfort and satisfaction and having this sort of intellectual way to wrap your arms around what God is and what faith is and how that translates into your own life, uh, being safe and secure and, and having the answers. And that is associated with power. And, uh, and if there's an almighty powerful force, uh, and, and there's a set of rules that you can follow and, and adhere to, and, um, be uh, subservient to, you know, that will, you know, whatever you need to do to give yourself uh, security and and comfort. And that, I think there's some kind of connection between those things. I mean, people, I think just naturally in our brain, we just, there's this respect for power and brute force. And that's just something that's inherent to us. And maybe there's something about, you know, I don't know if it's like Reformation 2.0 or what you might call it, but there could be something where we can start to broaden our view on what is, what really is strength, you know, uh, is there a strength in, uh, weakness and vulnerability, uh, which is hard to mentally wrap your mind around, but just the idea of the cross being this really an, an image of, of weakness and suffering, but there is there strength within that, you know, which I think is very, uh. Interesting. I don't fully understand that, but I like to think about how there is strength within a symbol of, of weakness. And I don't know that yeah. that would be something to to help with deconstruction. and um...
5: Yeah. And and historically, I think the way to understand the cross in the way that you're, you're talking about, you know, we have to look to you know, oppressed and marginalized communities. And because, you know, specifically the church began among the poor and the powerless. And and the cross signified for them God's solidarity with them uh, in, in their sufferings. And and in that sense, a kind of liberative and and you know uh of, you know, God was a God of justice and liberation and, and who had a preferential treatment of the poor. I mean, that's the God revealed in the gospels through Jesus of Nazareth, right? A man of acquainted with suffering and, you know, a friend of so-called tax collectors and sinners and Samaritans and all those on the margins, right? Um, and in today, specifically within the United States, um, within our history, uh, you know, I follow James Cone, the late James Cone, who says, you know, the gospel is the gospel in the United States is understood through Black liberation. Black liberation theology is the gospel in the American Christian context. Period. And in other words, you know, uh, Black History Month. I think that's an important thing to recognize as well. You know, James Cone was basically saying the best way for American Christians to understand the gospel is through Black liberation theology and the way the Black church has understood it. Uh, because again, the gospel has is is always been historically, you know, best understood by those on the margins and 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 those uh, who are disempowered, um, because it, it, it's it's fundamentally. Uh, deconstructive of power structures. And Luther, I think, even though he was, you know, a, uh, you know, not part of the uh, powerless class, uh, he was very much part of the elite, but he understood the cross as a destabilizing, a symbol that, you know, uh, you know, that destabilized power structures and called into question uh in anybody who tried to build an imperial power on you know or try to use the church for imperial power or anybody who claimed direct access to the mind of god luther was like no the cross is antithetical to that which is interesting because he wasn't uh getting there through i think um you know a slave's experience or something like that but you know he wasn't wrong um but anyway i i dan I, I think um the the way that we understand the cross is you it has to be informed by those on the margins first and foremost so And that's that's Christianity, in my opinion. Uh, Good stuff. Thank you, Dan.
3: Other other thoughts today about the legacy of the Reformation. I somebody I don't know if I saw something.
5: Um, I really think that um, one of the legacies of the Reformation uh, is really. you know, a lesson about the role of technology and how technology plays a big role in, you know, societal shifts in spirituality, right? Because the Reformation could not have taken off uh, like it did and when it did without, it, you know, an important piece of new technology, this, the movable type printing press, right? Gutenberg's press uh, that allowed for the widespread uh, and quick dissemination of Reformation ideas. Uh, technology has always played a role in massive societal spiritual shifts. Um, uh, Steve, Steve, I saw you post in the chat column. You know, comment about how the internet uh, absolutely plays a role. You think in um, uh, the deconstruction movement? Did you want to say more about that? Because I completely agree. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> if not, that's okay. I can go on. Um, I don't. I don't think the deconstruction movement, which has uh, so gripped the church in the United States. Uh, and that many of us here are a part of, I don't think that would have been possible without the internet and particularly social media, you know, AKA the marketplace of ideas. Right? It's the exposure to new ideas and hearing the stories of friends and family going through deconstruction and, and learning new things, right? It's, it's that experience happening in the virtual space, right? That has led to what's been labeled, you know, the, the deconstruction movement, which in turn has led to an increasing number of people who no longer affiliate with any organized religion or, or church. You know, this is the rise of the, of the so-called nuns and duns, right? And I think the internet and social media has directly caused this, this reformation, if we might call it that, or revolt, depending on your point of view. Uh, but in general, I think it's a good thing. Right? If, if the church cannot survive people asking questions and critiquing it, then it shouldn't survive. You know, any institution that relies on ignorance, on questioning devotion, and, and coercion, messages like you know, believe this or else. You know, any institution that relies on such things in order to survive is, is morally bankrupt and, and deserves to be left behind. And, and I think that's what we're seeing today and on a scale not seen before in history. And I think it's mostly be, um, being driven by, by the internet and, and related technologies like social media. Again, I think technology always plays a role in, in these massive societal spiritual shifts Um, do you guys, do you agree with that? Do you disagree? Do you have any thoughts about that?
7: Well, I was kind of trying to be a little bit more cynical about it in terms of, and I think this is something that I think a lot about lately in terms of like, like what I was saying is, you know, the internet's great. It's, it gives people a platform. It, you know, promotes, you know, freedom of speech, but it also allows a lot of bad information and misinformation to get out there. And, to the point where you 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 know you see the world around us and you you wonder like <laughs> is society going to be able to withstand this like like with all this division like you almost wonder if like society's going to crumble and <laughs> and i kind of was drawing that parallel with with you know the the reformation and you know while it, it was great that people can you know on with their, with their own mind and 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 thoughts you know process religion and how they want to think about it it also you know gives gives the freedom for people to come up with a lot of bad ideas about religion and, and proliferate you know all these you know you know uh, fundamentalist churches that you know anybody can just say well I I'm going to go to seminary and I'm just going to be a pastor and, and 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 they can have that freedom to do that and that's great but it's you know also problematic so I don't know. Just, just my thoughts on that.
5: Well, and it isn't an interesting that. And I know you're not making an argument like that, that we should get rid of the internet or social media. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but, but it isn't. Isn't it interesting that the medieval church had the exact same concerns? You know, in the sense if we if we allow people to read the Bible for themselves, you know, if we allow you know these reformers to you know. You know, interpret the Bible and, and start these other churches. What's going to happen? It's it's going to be you know absolute relativity and abstraction and endless fracturing and and ideas that cannot be you know called orthodoxy. And it's just a free for all and it's the end of civilization and da da da. You know, so, I mean, those concerns are not new concerns. Yeah, I mean, the internet and social media is perhaps spurring <laughs> spurring those things on to, in a degree never before seen in human history. But the underlying concerns by the you know, and legitimately, you know, in some ways, uh, th- those concerns are not new, but they're often, you know, really, you know, embodied, those concerns are really, you know, tr- you know, uh, embodied and uh, triumphed by the powerful most of all, right? You know, the-, the church does not, in general, like uh, questioning and people coming up with new ideas and disseminating those ideas and trying to get others to you know think differently and think for themselves and you know that they would say well it just leads to abstraction and and chaos and we can't have that because that's really well you know that's often the uh you know the concerns of of those who benefit from the status quo and, and the power structures that that endure anyway
3: yeah good stuff
8: uh may i yeah
5: of course go ahead andre
8: I uh, the the argument about like how, the topic about how tech was instrumental and the printing press for the Reformation and just in general to vehiculate uh, the you know the the spreading of in, information and ideas and viewpoints across you know all the whole world I I that really resonates with me like the the importance of technology and its influence but and I think internet is 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 obviously a great tool for uh, for people to communicate and connect and share their ideas I do believe though there is a new dimension that we have reached now that has never been present in humanity before uh, which is knowing everything about everyone that uh, introduces some um, a degree of complication and control we always go back we'll go back to control and power but I feel like now with, um, I say Facebook because it's the biggest social platform, but obviously the same goes for others as well. There, It's possible to actually target people down to the granular level of the neighborhoods and find out like what they believe about. And if the direction of the a specific idea that, you know, we not necessarily want not to influence people, but to communicate it and make sure that people understand it for what it is. I think that actually at this point, because of Internet, it has become harder to communicate honestly your viewpoint because it is so easy for uh, people in control of the information to actually just spin it with an article that is targeted down to the, you know, the zip code, of like what we want to believe in and just give, you know, like the other side of the coin that may have some degree of truth to it, but also may have a degree of manipulation and then you know, it, I think it's easier than has ever been before to actually, if for, with someone that has actually control over information and social platforms, to influence the spread and choose which ideas to be spread or not. And it's a dimension that I don't think has ever been present in humanity before to this degree, because we never knew with such precision people's beliefs. <laughs> I feel like, I hope I'm not being too apocalyptic or too negative, but uh, oh, you're, you're making yeah.
5: really good points, yeah.
8: I don't know. It's uh, something that's on my mind a lot. No, good stuff. You,
5: I can't disagree.
4: Yeah, to like piggyback off of that, the algorithm specifically in Facebook products is designed to repost posts that have angry content mm. more than other types of content. It's actually designed that way and the algorithm learned to be that way. So that's interesting, right? Because it's not just even uh, Aaron, to your earlier point, like about deconstruction has this sort of negative connotation to it. Things that are angry are more likely to spread on Facebook and Instagram than things that are positive in some way or life-giving in some way. And so there is, it, it isn't, um, you know, quite as free a mechanism even as the printing press where you can just sort of hand out something to different people and uh, things can pass around. It's like you could post something positive and it's far less likely to reach other people uh, than if you post something that's angry, especially at the extremes. Um, so it's sort of interesting too, uh, to kind of to Andre's point. It's like there is, I think there is some some design around that, but even for Facebook, it's just about money. A lot of the times it's about money in a way about the way the algorithm works so that more posts get angry posts are more likely to get sent, which means more ads can be put on Facebook and more things, you know, anyway. So uh, it's interesting because I think that's sort of added to the anger that's, that's behind some of these differences of opinion now.
5: And, and, And you're absolutely right. And all of this has spiritual import, right? How is this affecting us spiritually or, you know, the way that we understand ourselves and others as divine or sacred or, or how do we understand God in the midst of all of that? Yeah, no, I mean, that, really good points. Absolutely. Any other thoughts or...
8: Oh, if I may add one, yeah. just more technical detail on the Facebook uh, way of doing specifically, uh, one of the documents that came out as of uh, recently in the past month, you know, there was a whistleblower case uh, that came out of Facebook and turns out that Facebook needs these to export hatred to actually survive financially. It's not a matter uh, of like, well, we could be making way more money or we would still be very profitable. No, if they don't do that, they are going to fail as a business, which actually in the capitalistic world that we live in and with the fiduciary duties that, you know, the, the people at the head of the company have towards their investors makes it a certainty that they are going to pursue this direction as aggressively as possible for survival purposes of the company. So that, that, that's just something that struck me that really, you know, clear crystallized the direction that a company like that would go in.
5: Jeez. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that. Thank you. Yeah. That's really interesting. Anybody else? All right, friends. Well, thanks for being here today. Uh, one more virtual only Sunday, next Sunday, the 27th, and um, then we shall return to our, our beautiful building in downtown Glendale, um, and there will be a Zoom option available, of course, just always want to remind people of that, but thanks for being here, everybody. If you want to hang out and chat for a few minute, few more minutes, please do so, but otherwise, we are dismissed.
3: Thank you, Erin. Thank I, you, everyone. Thanks, Randy. Bye-bye now. Bye.